It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for The Athletic, Sam Amick. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Daily Assist brought to you by Lee's Heating and Air. Check them out online, leesheatac.com. Out to the Sprint special guest line we go. Sprint, make it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit sprint.com for online services and local store availability. From The Athletic, he's our good friend Sam Amick. Hi, Sam. Hi, guys. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Uh, help us out. In fact, we were just talking about um, what you told us last week. You were a little optimistic about things, possibly um, finishing out this season with the NBA. And a lot of water, as usual, has gone under the bridge since then. What? Uh, how has your opinion evolved? Tough to tell. Um, you know, I was just telling Austin that you know I've, I've talked to some people this week, um, trying to get at least a sense of you know the meeting on Friday, the Board of Governors meeting that included uh, Dr. Ho, whose first name I'm forgetting, but you know one of the experts that is helping advise the league through this situation. Uh, you know we had heard some chatter that it was a, a, a pretty sobering call in terms of the perspective that Dr. Ho brought to the group, and so the natural follow-up thought in my mind was just the, the mere idea that, uh, you know, maybe some of that optimism had been dimmed uh, because basically the experts in the room, you know, kind of drilled down the, the reality of the situation. So I guess I will answer by saying this. I can't pretend to have spoken to all 30 governors, not even close, but I mean, I was a little surprised this week that when I followed up with some of the same folks who had shared optimism going in, that uh, that they actually did not feel any differently. And so... Um, still hard to kind of reconcile that because the numbers are still pretty uh, disastrous, you know, in a lot of parts of the country and the world and testing issues remain. And, but nonetheless, you know, there still seems to be a real sense in some NBA circles that uh, they'll find a way to, to salvage the season here. I really think discretion is is good on the part of the league because they don't want to get this wrong, Sam. You gotta, you gotta make sure you get all the information you possibly can to make the right decision. And it's so volatile right now. I mean, different p- bits and pieces coming in every day. We just don't know yet. No, you're right. Well, and it's also just hard. Every time I have this discussion with somebody about, you know, the what if, it's it's really, I mean, I know we're all, you know, kind of twiddling our thumbs, especially those of us in the sports media industry that are waiting for, you know, the kind of bread and butter of what we do to return. But it's it's a pretty uninformed conversation to have unless you can somehow magically tell me what the the numbers are going to be, what the state of affairs is going to be, you know, like in mid-May, early June. You know, that's kind of where I think we're talking about here. So, you know, I mean, to to put a glasses half full outlook on it, you know, I, I, I hope that we're all sitting here a month from now saying, no, it makes sense for the NBA to start up again with no fans. And and I hope we're feeling good about that prognostication because that would mean that things had really improved. But uh, obviously no way of knowing that at this point. 
So it's kind of funny, Sam, that here where we should be asking you about the NBA playoffs, the only basketball we have to talk about is a documentary about Michael Jordan about playoffs that took place 20 years ago. And I can't remember if last week you told us if you'd been privy to any more of the documentary than what we've seen thus far. But we got to consume the first two episodes, and I thought they were pretty entertaining. Uh, Give us a quick review. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I thought they were really good. Um, you know, I've, I've heard other people say that we didn't, they don't think we learned very much. And I understand that criticism. I also, the part of me that, you know, that does write for a living would say that strategically, if you got 10 episodes and you are trying to appeal to the mainstream audience, not just the hardcore basketball fans, you, you know, you need to lay a, a, a groundwork and a foundation uh, storytelling wise that, that might include a bunch of stuff that, a lot of basketball fans already knew, but you can't assume that um, when you're making something like this. And so I would expect that as it goes deeper and and as it goes on, we're going to get a lot more new information. I think we're going to get, you know, more color, uh, better footage Um, to your, one of your questions. um, I did funny. I looked at my email the other day and I was kicking myself because I had a note from the last dance people that said, uh, that uh, hey, the access that we gave you to all ten episodes will be coming to an end on Friday, and then you talk about a, a bad email to miss. I didn't even know I had access, and apparently <laughs> I did. So, <laughs> but I kind of then decided to just watch it with everybody else. So I, I haven't watched ahead. Um, I will shamelessly plug a really fun conversation that we had on our podcast this week, guys. Um, Andy Thompson who is the, the brother of former Laker Michael Thompson and the uncle to Warrior star Clay Thompson. He's the videographer and the, and the NBA entertainment producer who came up with this idea of following the Bulls in 97, 98. And we talked to Andy for about 45 minutes, and he was, it was so much fun. He, it's the whole entire backstory on you know why he thought it would be important to follow those Bulls, how he got the project off the ground, approaching Adam Silver, who had just taken over at NBA Entertainment. Adam then had to convince Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan. Um, Andy actually knew Michael, so he had some of you know, a little bit of an in there. And there's just all these stories. I mean, I actually, right before you guys called, I was transcribing some of it. I'm going to try to put some of it out in written form tomorrow. And just fascinating stuff. I mean, to give you a, a little taste of it, you know, late in the season in March, the entire film crew is just, they're over the moon about how, you know, much great footage they had. They're excited about this project. And Phil Jackson calls Andy Thompson into his office and Andy admits, he says, this made me nervous. You know, Phil did not normally speak to me directly. Normally he just either told me to get out or come in. Um, And Phil essentially called him in to say, Hey, you guys have gained the player's trust. Congratulations. Uh, We're going into the playoffs and, and here's the ground rules for the playoffs. But he was just happy that they didn't get booted in March because I guess they went the entire season not really knowing from day to day if they would have access for the entire season. There was not a season-long arrangement. So it was a lot of fun to hear all these backstories, especially now you know that we're all sitting here watching the finished product. Sam, I know in that case, uh, you, you're talking about Michael Jordan and, and Scottie Pippen, these preeminent talents. So very uh, established and in some ways powerful. But how often do you think there is a disruption of unity between players, coaches, 
and management, the way it's been portrayed in the first two episodes of this Michael Jordan thing with Jerry Krause and Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan and Scotty. I mean, it's there a lot um, within the league. Now, this is, you know, this is pretty, I was going to say toxic. I don't know if that's too strong. That's probably too strong in some circles. Like, Scotty and MJ were not toxic. Um, but, you know, Scotty and Jerry Krause were toxic. Yeah. And I would say that usually, you know, you have some of that discomfort. Um, and honestly, you know, your hometown team is, I do believe going through a little bit of that right now. Nothing close to toxic, but uncomfortableness and the stuff with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert and, and really Rudy and, you know, I think just his relationship with the organization is an evolving thing. Um, with the Bulls, um, it was, I think, on a, on a higher level. And it kind of transcended basketball. You have some uncomfortable elements that, you know, coming out of episode one, you know, a lot of people with good reason were focused on the fact that Michael and Scotty were, you know, say what you will about Jerry Krause, and everybody agrees that he had a real knack for, as, as Steve Kerr put it, for, for pissing everybody off. Um, but still, you know, making fun of his weight, making fun of his height. Like, there was a bullying aspect that I've never seen in my career when it comes to players with GMs. So that part, I think, was unique. A lot of a lot of their stuff was unique. I mean, the owner signing the coach to a one-year contract for $6 million and then just announcing publicly that this will be Phil Jackson's last year. And then essentially... You know, saying, okay, all of you guys now get to work and good luck winning the title. I mean, that you don't see anything remotely close to that these days. So the the element and some of those themes are as old as time, but, you know, there was a lot of that in, in the Bulls situation. Uh, rewinding the conversation, Sam, for a second uh, to your conversation on uh, on the podcast with a videographer, and uh, I have not had a chance to listen to it. I, I definitely will will put it high on the priority list because that sounds fascinating. But did he get, share any thoughts on on how they edited uh, the the documentary and what they decided to include? If he was happy or or not, he did. Um, and uh, you know, the short answer there would be that an interesting creative process where you have like the team of people who shot the footage in 97, 98, you know, and Andy had the a title of one of the executive producers of the documentary. He had the ability to like, he had to sign off on things. And so he had his voice, he had his power, if you will. And then you had uh, the, the new team of creative people who their job was to merge the old footage with interviews and with, uh, you know, footage that was not from the locker room, just other footage that you guys have seen a lot of in the first two episodes. So um, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on the director's name. Jason Mir, I believe I'm going to yeah. hopefully get it right, is the director, and they worked as a team. Now, to give you a sense of it, I think the whole doc is going to be really, really good. I uh, Journalistically, I'm not going to lie, you look at it and you kind of, I think it has to be said, Michael Jordan himself had to sign off on this. So I would in general say that, you know, documentaries that get the approval of the main subject are not typically going to tell the entire story. You know what I mean? Like, so do I think some of this stuff is going to be a little bit watered down? Maybe. Um, You know, I hope that Michael, because of how much time has gone by and, and how long everybody's waited for this, that, that he tried to get as close to authenticity as possible. 
But, you know, that's the process. You have the old team, the new team. You have Michael in the middle. Um, when we talked to Andy, and I thought this was really interesting, you know, on Sunday night after the first two episodes aired, this, this whole group, uh, the people I mentioned, along with Michael himself, they jumped on a Zoom call, and, and they're, they're having like a creative meeting about how it went and reaction and things of that nature. And Andy, uh, he shared a story about how he, he was saying to Michael on their Zoom call, kind of going down memory lane about the, uh, a time that Andy went to him with a list of six requests, like, we need this footage before the playoffs get here. You know, will you let us do X, you know, this and this and this. And so it's a pretty wild uh, combination of, of all those different parts. And I would say, yes, he was really happy with the first two episodes, but the one thing he got me excited about is that um, they did not have fantastic access in the first two months of the season. They basically had to earn everybody's trust. And so his point was that the, the footage in the first two episodes is nothing compared to what we're going to see uh, once. He said around the fourth episode is when it should really ramp up when it comes to you know feeling like you're with the, you know, the, the team. And so that got me kind of jacked. I think it's going to get stronger as it goes on. So attendant with that is a two-part question that I have, Sam. Are you going to learn, and I mean you specifically, are you going to learn anything new about Michael Jordan? And the second part of the question is, do you think you'll learn anything from this experience with the Bulls and Jordan that is applicable to the modern NBA? Um, if I learn anything, I mean, I would have to be humble and admit that I learned like the first two episodes, I got reminded of things that I had completely right. forgotten about. I mean, you, you know, you're talking 97, 98, uh, I'm in college. Um, so I'm paying attention and I am a big Jordan fan at that time, but I'm not reading the Chicago papers. And I, I didn't remember that Jerry Reinsdorf publicly, I don't even know if I ever knew that he publicly said, uh, going into the last season that, that Phil Jackson was going to be out after that year. So, you know, some of that stuff, um, if I had come into this business five, six years earlier, then I think it would have been uh, not new at all. So, I mean, I'm going to learn things. And, and, yeah, I do think a lot of this stuff uh, applies to today's NBA. I, I don't know if you guys caught Draymond Green's interview on the Uninterrupted platform where they, they had like a, an after party, after watch party on, again, on you know Zoom or video. And Draymond was comparing the Warriors dynasty with the Bulls. And I just really thought he hit the nail on the head when it comes to the parallels and some of these themes that, that applied then and apply now. Uh, one specific one was the curious human condition of like, you know, you get a bunch of really talented people in the room and if they if they could keep their egos out of it, if they could keep their emotions in check, then you could dominate your industry for you know as long as your body uh, allows you to. But it's more often than not, it's the mind and it's the ego that presents a problem. It's the the, the comfort level changes, um, you know, frustrations pile up, resentments end up building, money gets involved. Obviously, the Scottie Pippen contract. And the impact that had was a real focus of the second episode. And that stuff, you know, having covered the Warriors so closely, I found it really interesting to your question that it did apply to today's NBA because it's 100% real. Um, I remember just a quick moment that comes to mind. Harrison Barnes, before Kevin Durant, Harrison Barnes turns down 
uh, an extension for fifty plus million dollars with the Warriors. He just thought he was worth more, and he let his situation, you know, go for another year. And as he was sharing his reasoning with the media in a press conference, Draymond Green pops his head through a curtain and shouts in front of the entire media. It's like, y'all going to ask him how he could leave that bag on the table or something to that effect? And, and it was everybody laughed, but it, but I that's the day I learned that Draymond thought Harrison was crazy, and it was kind of the beginning of the end of Harrison's time uh, with them. And money being you know the theme and contracts being the theme and and all these moving, you know, all these players fitting together as pieces of a puzzle that, you know, where the human factor comes into play. You know, you you sparked a thought in my mind, Sam, with your answer there. And I was trying to think of these elite dynasty type teams, if the if there is an example of of one that wasn't affected. You know, you think across sports. I mean, Jerry Jones couldn't get get along with Jimmy Johnson, and that was the beginning of the end there. You know, uh, we we obviously talk about the Bulls. Kobe and Shaq is another obvious one. And I I thought, Matt, wow, maybe we should appreciate the San Antonio Spurs a little bit more because their franchise was a nirvana for so long. But even they weren't immune to it because of how it ended nope. with Kawhi Leonard. You know, it, it's so hard, yeah. I think, to avoid this stuff you're talking about. No, for sure. Right as you said, the Spurs, I was processing whether or not, Jake, that that was accurate. And it's like, no, the Kawhi thing, you know, now we, now we know, uh, you know, Kawhi had some jealousy about the way some of the other, you know, more legendary Spurs had been treated and he wanted some of that treatment right away. Um, you know, so yeah, they had it. Another team that comes to mind just because I grew up a big 49ers fan is like the 49ers, you know, most dominant team in football for a very long time. And Joe Montana gets hurt and, and this young guy, Steve Young, starts really showing out. And, you know, and, and now you got yourselves, you got some feelings involved here. Joe's not really sure what he thinks about the fact that, you know, it looks like he's lost the. You know, not his entire job, but that the the young guy was, you know, kind of pushing his way in, and now he's a little sideways with the organization, and he finishes up with the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, and and when there was a lot of their era where you felt like they could do it for ten, twelve years. So, um, yeah, just those themes—they're there all the time. And Maverick Carter, you know, LeBron James's business manager, was one of the other people on that that little uh, after party with Draymond. And Maverick was the one making that point where it's just that, you know, you would think like if you compare it to a company, you get the right people, you put them under the same roof. And if they have certain skill sets and certain IQs and certain, you know, minds that you should just be successful until they choose not to be there anymore. Um, But that, you know, it should be pretty straightforward. And it's obviously not at all. Sam, where are you on on renegotiating contracts because obviously Scottie Pippen signs that deal. Reinsdorf tells him not to, but he does it because of his family situation. He wants the security and whatnot. And then this great player ends up being vastly underpaid. Uh, Do you think Reinsdorf was, uh, does he reflect a popular sort of notion that, hey, baby, once you sign that thing, you have to live by it, I'm not going to renegotiate? Or do you think that's a bit of an extreme view? I mean, truthfully, I would say, I mean, if I was in Reinsdorf's position, you know, you're reading the room, and for one, you know, those those problems don't exist anymore in today's NBA in terms of contract length. You know, Scotty signed a seven-year deal. You can't sign one of those anymore. Um it's an interesting question, though, because 
one thing that stands out to me is that Michael, you know, then and now, is that has essentially accused Scotty of not putting the team first. And if you're Jerry Reinsdorf, you know, it would be tempting to just stand by the contract because, I mean, if you had Michael, you know, telling you that, you know, that he was on Scotty's side and, and Michael, like essentially if you got sideways with Michael because of this, then, you know, I think you would need to rethink your, you know, what your position because Michael's the most important person within that organization. Um, that's kind of the micro of it, like where I would be reading the room and, and I would be so afraid of losing Michael that, um, you know, I would want to know where he was at. The other side is Reinsdorf just comes off like an owner with a, I mean, listen, he, to this day, he's, he is a pretty respected owner, but, you know, that's a short view to me because in today's NBA, you know, if that sort of a narrative got out that, you know, that you're doing a victory lap because you've got a really, really good Hall of Fame level player on a bargain basement deal. That's the kind of, those are the kind of optics that don't help you in free agency. You know, every team these days is trying to earn that reputation as being player friendly. You know, whether it's the Lakers and, you know, they've got just destroyed for giving Kobe Bryant that late contract in his career. But the number one reason they did that, with Jeannie Buss being the, the biggest advocate of it, was so that players felt like, you know, we have your back every single day of the week. And, you know, whether it's them or the Oklahoma City Thunder trying to, to constantly protect their players, uh, just that's a very different outlook uh, than, than you see in today's NBA. Sam, as always, thank you so much. You're always a highlight of the week. Thanks, guys. Likewise. Talk to you next week. You're the man, Sam. Sam Amick, our dear friend from The Athletic, joins us each and every week, part of your NBA Daily Assist. And he is a highlight. He's always always fun to talk to, and he's got a great perspective on most things, Gordon, including that uh, Last Dance documentary. Oh, man, that was great stuff. I, I love talking with Sam, and I think our listeners have indicated that they do, too. He talked to the or, the the filmographer that uh, filmed all this stuff. I, I asked him about whether he was happy with the editing because don't you wonder that guy who's behind the camera getting yeah. all of the footage, you know, seeing everything, and then they finally see the final product, which they include probably. What would you think, Gordon? You've seen these types of films made before. They they include five percent of the footage, yeah. you know, something probably like less that. Than that. If if you were the person who sat there and and did all of the shooting, you've got to think to yourself during every scene, like, well, why'd they include that garbage? Or that was way better. Or I can't believe they missed out on this, you know? Yeah, that's the way it works. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's probably some pretty heated discussions that go on from time to time about what should be included and what shouldn't. However, there are 10 hours involved here. I mean, that's fairly thorough. Yeah, but it seems like their access, although Sam did say, um, that he related that the access wasn't as good during the first couple of months of the season, but it 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 seems like they had really good access. I mean, right to that scene in episode one where Jordan uh, jokes with the cameraman, where he's like, "Ah, oh, you got to stay here." No, I'm just kidding. Come on in, you know. Uh, it, you you wonder what they actually have on film. Well, uh, when I think I, I look at it that way, yeah, a whole season's worth. But then I think, wait a minute, this thing is the equivalent. Of two and a half gone with the winds. Well, I don't want to know how much film they shot during Gone with the Wind. It was probably ridiculous. Well, that, you know, speaking of which, that would have been a good title for this uh, docu docu series, uh, at least as far as the jazz are concerned. 
You know, here's gone with gone with the winds. Here's the thing when selecting a title. W I N S. Come on. When so, yeah, I, I, I got it. See, he's not even listening. I'm listening. He's, I'm listening. I was just going to tell you when selecting a title for a book or movie, if you ever choose to make one, do not pick another title that you could not possibly ever outshine. Well, that's why I said wins instead of wins with a D. It was funny. It was humorous. It was comedic. You didn't laugh. I, I think the name of your autobiography is going to be Gordon Monson, from Hollywood to Hooterville. <laughs> and back Here again. We go. Here we go again, yeah. Mm. Uh, My trip right. down the I-15. Yeah, wins, right? I got it, Gordon. But at first, it's you, not the I-15. you had said... <laughs> Come on, show some sophistication here. Wait a minute. It is the I-15, according to you. It's the 15. Leave out the I. No, it's, you live in Utah, it's I-15. And there's no the. I'm drawing a line here. It's I-15. The I is implied, so it's a 15. Everybody knows it's an interstate. But the interstate 15 would be bad grammar, no? Look, if Ohio State yes, University correct. can go by the Ohio State University, then I can say the 15. Well, I find that dumb, and I find the other use of the word dumb. See, dumb. here's the thing about Jake uh, Austin, and you might know this by now, but he see he gets really stubborn about certain things. And then no, he takes his grammar heels in. is one of them. Yes, the, 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 not sticks, Jake. He, <laughs> he sticks to it, and he's got a point to prove. You know, so he's like Shaq's bad at golly, basketball. I'm never coming off this point, doggone it. <laughs> yeah, I gotta Gordon. go get myself on the internet or the Interstate 15. No, I, that, I, that, I hear that's, a lot of it's Interstate 15. Grandma saddle up the wagon. We're heading to town. <laughs> what route did you take here? Get interstate your, 15. Get your good bloomers on. <laughs> Not the Interstate 15, just Interstate 15. That reminds me of what Michael Landon used to say about the, the set of the Ponderosa back in the day. He said it was the only place where 30 year old men had to ask Paul before they could go into town. Is that the the guy who wrote uh, White Fang? Yes. Michael Landon. Michael Landon. Yeah, White Fang. He was Call of the Wild, too, right? Uh, His brother, John. (laughs) This is is impossible. What? You referenced some uh, random author from my youth and I can't recognize it? The, the, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Michael Landon (laughs) was the, was Little Joe on Bonanza? Michael Landon wrote White Fang. Actually, that was Michael London, but uh, yeah, and Jack London. Jack London, With right? Wild, yeah, that's why I made the John joke. But so, so I'm that, a mile behind that, so Austin, that, and it's London, so was that, not was Landon. That a joke? I knew uh, it was, was London. <laughs> but we're just would... simple folk down here in Hooterville. Yeah, we wait. ain't got them books yet. Wait, what? What year? What year was? I the... hardly read. What year was the TV show you're referencing today? What show was it? <laughs> Bonanza. Come on. You've heard of Bonanza. First episode of Bonanza. Let's see what year that it was. Probably about 1960, I guess. September 12th, 1959. Okay. So Close somehow enough. you went even older than your reference yesterday. So you got Bonanza and you got Paul Cartwright. 
and you have Adam, the oldest brother, and then you got Hoss, and then you got your little Joe. And then, then Adam, he had some sort of contract dispute, or he was ornery or something, so they he left the show at some point. But one of my favorite episodes of Bonanza was when Hoss, and you know who Hoss was, right? Nope, no clue. Yes, we know. Yes, we know. Yeah, he was he was on his way. <laughs> he was on his way for a benefit for the kids, dressed up like the Easter Bunny. And he runs across some ne'er-do-wells, and he starts bombing them with Easter eggs. That's pretty funny. Sounds like simple, it. simple, simple humor back then. But I, I figure folks in Hooterville would be able to laugh <laughs> along with that. BYU picks up a commute. Uh, commute. A <laughs> picks up a commute. Now I've got interstates on the brain. Picks up a transfer. <laughs> oh, great! No, in basketball. A commute down the I-15. We'll talk about it more. This is a connotation we don't want to apply to our community. More next, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Fascinating, baby.